Section 7 of A Popular History of France, Volume 5. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 5, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 36. Henry IV, Catholic King, 1593-1610. to Part 2. Henry the Fourth, with his mind full of his new character as a Catholic king, perceived the necessity of getting the Pope to confirm the absolution which had been given him at the time of his conversion by the French bishops. It was the condition of his credit amongst the numerous Catholic population who were inclined to rally to him, but required to know that he was at peace with the head of their church. He began by sending to Rome non-official agents instructed to quietly sound the Pope, amongst others Arnold d'Ossat a learned professor in the University of Paris, who became at a later period the celebrated cardinal and diplomat of that name. Clement VIII, or Hippolytus Aldobrandini, was a clever man, moderate and prudent to the verge of timidity, and one who was disinclined to take decisive steps as to difficult questions or positions until they had been decided by events. He refused to have any communication with him who he still called the Prince of Bern, and only received the agents of Henry the Fourth privately in his closet. But whilst he was personally severe and exacting in his behaviour to them, he had a hint given them by one of his confidants not to allow themselves to be rebuffed by any obstacle, for the Pope would sooner or later welcome back the lost child who returned to him. At this report, and by the advice of the Grand Duke of Tuscany, Ferdinand de Medici, Henry the Fourth determined to send a solemn embassy to Rome, and to put it under the charge of a prince of Italian origin, Peter de Gonzaga, Duke of Nevers. But either through the Pope's stubborn resolve, or the ambassador's somewhat impatient temper, devoted as he was, however, to the Holy See, the embassy had no success. The Duke of Nevers could not obtain an official reception as ambassador of the King of France. It was in vain that he had five confidential audiences of the Pope, in vain that he represented energetically to him all the progress Henry the Fourth had already made, all the chances he had of definitive success, all the perils to which the papacy exposed itself by rejecting his advances. Clement the Eighth persisted in his determination. Philip the Second and Mayenne still reigned in his ideas, and he dismissed the Duke of Nevers on the 13th of January, 1594, declaring once more that he refused to the Nevarese absolution at the inner bar of conscience, absolution at the outer bar, and confirmation in his kingship. Henry the Fourth did not put himself out, did not give himself the pleasure of testifying to Rome his discontent. He saw that he had not as yet sufficiently succeeded sufficiently vanquished his enemies or won to himself his kingdom with sufficient completeness and definitiveness to make the pope feel bound to recognize and sanction his triumph he set himself once more to work to grow still greater in france and force the gates of rome without its being possible to reproach him with violence or ill-temper he had been absolved and crowned at st denis by the bishops of france he had not been anointed at rheims according to the religious traditions of the french monarchy at rheims he could not be for it was still in the power of the league researches were made to discover whether the ceremony of anointment might take place elsewhere numerous instances were found and in the case of famous kings pepin the short had been anointed first of all at mayence charlemagne and louis the debonair at rome charles the bald at mayence several emperors at aix la chapelle and at cologne 
The question of the holy file, or ampoule, was also discussed, and it was proved that on several occasions other oils, held to be of miraculous origin, had been employed instead. These difficulties thus removed, the anointment of Henry IV took place at Chartres on the 27th of February, 1594. The Bishop of Chartres, Nicolas de Thou, officiated, and drew up a detailed account of all the ceremonies and all the rejoicings thirteen medals each weighing fifteen gold crowns were struck according to custom they bore the king's image and for legend invia virtuti nulla est via or to manly worth no road is inaccessible henry the fourth on his knees before the grand altar took the usual oath the form of which was presented to him by chancellor de cheverny with the exception of local accessories which were acknowledged to be impossible and unnecessary there was nothing wanting to this religious hallowing of his kingship but one other thing more important than the anointment at chartres was wanting he did not possess the capital of his kingdom the league were still masters of paris uneasy masters of their situation but not so uneasy however as they ought to have been the great leaders of the party, the Duke of Mayenne, his mother the Duchess of Nemours, his sister the Duchess of Montpensier, and the Duke of Feria, Spanish ambassador, were within its walls, a prey to alarm and discouragement. Quote, At breakfast, said the Duchess of Montpensier, they regale us with the surrender of a hamlet, at dinner of a town, at supper of a whole province. End quote. The Duchess of Nemours, who desired peace, exerted herself to convince her son of all their danger. Quote, Set your affairs in order, she said. If you do not begin to make your arrangements with the king before leaving Paris, you will lose this capital. I know that projects are already afoot for giving it up, and that those who can do it, and in whom you have most confidence, are accomplices and even authors of the plot. End quote. Mayenne himself did not hide from his confidants the gravity of the mischief and his own disquietude. Quote, not a day, he wrote on the 4th of February, 1594, to the Marquis of Montpezat, but brings some trouble because of the people's yearning for repose, and of the weakness which is apparent on our side. I stem and stop this ferment with as much courage as I can, but the present mischief is overwhelming. The King of Navarre will in a few days have an army of twenty thousand men, French as well as foreigners. What will become of us, if we have not wherewithal not only to oppose him, but to make him lose the campaign? I can tell you of a verity that, save for my presence, Paris would have already been lost because of the great factions there are in it, which I take all the pains in the world to disperse and break up, and also because of the small aid, or rather the gainsaying, I meet with from the ministers of the King of Spain." Mayenne tried to restore amongst the leaguers both zeal and discipline he convoked on the 2nd of March a meeting of all that remained of the faction of the Sixteen. He calculated upon the presence of some twelve hundred. Scarcely three hundred came. He had an harangue delivered to them by the Reverend John Boucher, charged them to be faithful to the old spirit of the League, promised them that he would himself be faithful even to death, and exhorted them to be obedient in everything to Brissac, whom he had just appointed governor of the city, and to the provost of tradesmen on announcing to them his imminent departure for Soissons, to meet some auxiliary troops which were to be sent to him by the King of Spain, quote, I leave to you, he said, what is dearest to me in the world, my wife, my children, my mother, and my sister. End quote. But when he did set out, four days afterwards, on the 6th of March, 1594, he took away his wife and his children. 
His mother had already warned him that Brissac was communicating secretly by means of his cousin, Sieur de Rochepot, with the royalists, and that the provost of tradesmen, Villiers, and three of the four sheriffs were agreed to bring the city back to obedience to the king. When the sixteen and their adherents saw Mayenne departing with his wife and children, great were their alarm and wrath. A large band, with the incumbent of St. Cosmo, or Hamilton, at their head, rushed about the streets in arms, saying, quote, Look to your city, the policists are brewing a terrible business for it. End quote. Others, more violent, cried, quote, To arms, down upon the policists, begin, let us make an end of it. End quote. The policists, that is, the burgesses inclined to peace, repaired on their side to the provost of tradesmen to ask for his authority to assemble at the palace or the Hotel de Ville, and to provide for security in case of any public calamity. The provost tried to elude their entreaties by pleading that the Duke of Mayenne would think ill of their assembling. Quote, then you are not the tradesmen's, but Monsieur de Mayenne's provost, said one of them. Quote, I am no Spaniard, answered the provost, no more is Monsieur de Mayenne. I am anxious to reconcile you to the sixteen. Quote, we are honest folks, not branded and defamed like the sixteen. We will have no reconciliation with the wretches. End quote. The Parliament grew excited, and exclaimed against the insolence and the menaces of the Sixteen. Quote, we must give place to these sedition-mongers, or put them down. End quote. A decree, published by sound of trumpet on the 14th of March, 1594, throughout the whole city, prohibited the Sixteen and their partisans from assembling on pain of death. That same day, Count de Brissac, governor of Paris, had an interview at the Abbey of St. Anthony with his brother-in-law Francis de Pinay, Lord of Saint-Luc, Henry the Fourth's Grand Master of the Ordnance. They had disputes touching private interests, which they wished, they said, to put right. And on this pretext, advocates had appeared at their interview. They spent three hours in personal conference, their minds being directed solely to the means of putting the king into possession of Paris. They separated in apparent dudgeon. Brissac went to call upon the legate Gaetani, and begged him to excuse the error he had committed in communicating with a heretic. His interest in the private affairs in question was too great, he said, for him to neglect it. The legate excused him graciously, whilst praising him for his modest conduct, and related the incident to the Duke of Feria, the Spanish ambassador. Quote, he is a good fellow, Monsieur de Brissac, said the ambassador. I have always found him so. You have only to employ the Jesuits to make him do all you please. He takes little notice otherwise of affairs. One day, when we were holding counsel in here, whilst we were deliberating, he was amusing himself by catching flies. For four days the population of Paris was occupied with a solemn procession in honor of St. Geneviève, in which the Parliament and all the municipal authorities took part. Brissac had agreed with his brother-in-law d'Epinay that he would let the king in on the twenty-second of March, and he had arranged, in concert with the provost of tradesmen, two sheriffs, and several district captains, the course of procedure. On the twenty-first of March, in the evening, some leaguers paid him a visit, and spoke to him warmly about the rumours current on the subject in the city, calling upon him to look to it. Quote, I have received the same notice, said Brissac coolly, and I have given all the necessary orders. Leave me to act, and keep you quiet, so as not to wake up those who will have to be secured. Tomorrow morning you will see a fine to-do, and the policists much surprised. End quote. 
During all the first part of the night between the 21st and 22nd of March, Brissac went his rounds of the city and the guards he had posted, quote, with an appearance of great care and solicitude, end quote. He had some trouble to get rid of certain Spanish officers, quote, whom the Duke of Feria had sent him to keep company in his rounds, with orders to throw themselves upon him and kill him at the first suspicious movement. But they saw nothing to confirm their suspicions, and at two a.m. Brissac brought them back much fatigued to the Duke's, where he left them, end quote. Henry IV, having started on the 21st of March from Saint-Lys, where he had mustered his troops, and arrived about midnight at Saint-Denis, immediately began his march to Paris. The night was dark and stormy, thunder rumbled, rain fell heavily, the king was a little behind time. At 3 a.m. the policists inside Paris had taken arms and repaired to the posts that had been assigned to them. Brissac had placed a guard close to the quarters of the Spanish ambassador, and ordered the men to fire on any who attempted to leave. He had then gone in person, with Villiers, the provost of tradesmen, to the new gate, which he had caused to be unlocked and guarded. Sheriff Langlois had done the same at the gate of Saint-Denis. On the 22nd of March, at 4 a.m., the king had not yet appeared before the ramparts, nor any one for him. Langlois issued from the gate, went some little distance to look out, and came in again, more and more impatient. At last, between four and five o'clock, a detachment of the royal troops, commanded by Vitry, appeared before the gate of Saint-Denis, which was instantly opened. Brissac's brother-in-law, Saint-Luc, arrived about the same time at the new gate, with a considerable force. The king's troops entered Paris. They occupied the different districts, and met with no show of resistance but at the quay of l'école, where an outpost of Lanxnex tried to stop them. But they were cut in pieces or hurled into the river. Between five and six o'clock Henry IV, at the head of the last division, crossed the drawbridge of the new gate. Brissac, Provost Lullier, the sheriffs, and several companies of burgesses advanced to meet him. The king embraced Brissac, throwing his own white scarf round his neck, and addressing him as Marshal, quote, "'Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's,' said Brissac, as he called upon the provost of tradesmen to present to the king the keys of the city. Quote, "'Yes,' said Villiers, "'render them, not sell them.'" The king went forward with his train, going along Rue Saint-Honoré to the Market of the Innocents and the Bridge of Notre-Dame. The crowd increased at every step. Quote, let them come near, said Henry, they hunger to see a king. End quote. At every step, too, at sight of the smallest incident, the character of Henry, his natural, thoughtful, and lovable kindliness, shone forth. He asked if his entry had met with resistance anywhere, and he was told that about fifty lanxnecks had been killed at the quay of l'école. I would willingly give fifty thousand crowns, said he, to be able to say that I took Paris without costing the life of one single man. End quote. As he marched along the Rue Saint-Honoré, he saw a soldier taking some bread by force from a baker's. He rushed at him, and would have struck him with his sword. As he passed in front of the innocents, he saw at a window a man who was looking at him, and pointedly keeping his hat on. The man perceived that the king observed him, and withdrew, shutting down the window. Henry said, quote, Let nobody enter this house to vex or molest any one in it. End quote. He arrived in front of Notre-Dame, followed by five or six hundred men-at-arms, who trailed their pikes, quote, in token of a victory that was voluntary on the people's part, end quote, it was said. 
There was no uproar, or any hostile movement, save on the left bank of the Seine, in the university quarter, where the sixteen attempted to assemble their partisans round the gate of Saint-Jacques. But they were promptly dispersed by the people, as well as by the royal troops. On leaving Notre-Dame, Henry repaired to the Louvre, where he installed royalty once more. At ten o'clock he was master of the whole city. The districts of Saint-Martin, of the Temple, and Saint-Anthony alone remained still in the power of three thousand Spanish soldiers, under the orders of their leaders, the Duke of Feria and Don Diago di Barra. Nothing would have been easier for Henry than to have had them driven out by his own troops and the people of Paris, who wanted to finish the day's work by exterminating the foreigners but he was too judicious and too far-sighted to embitter the general animosity by pushing his victory beyond what was necessary he sent word to the spaniards that they must not move from their quarters and must leave paris during the day at the same time promising not to bear arms any more against him in france they eagerly accepted these conditions at three o'clock in the afternoon ambassador officers and soldiers all evacuated paris and set out for the low countries the king posted at a window over the gate of st denis witnessed their departure they as they passed saluted him respectfully and he returned their salute saying quote, go gentlemen and commend me to your master but return no more after his conversion to catholicism the capture of paris was the most decisive of the issues which made henry the fourth really king of france the submission of rouen followed almost immediately upon that of paris and the year 1594 brought Henry a series of successes, military and civil, which changed very much to his advantage the position of the kingship as well as the general condition of the kingdom. In Normandy, in Picardy, in Champagne, in Anjou, in Poitou, in Brittany, in Orléanès, in Auvergne, a multitude of important towns, Havre, Honfleur, Abbeville, Amiens, Peronu, Montdidier, Poitiers, Orléans, Rheims, Château-Thierry, Beauvais, Sens, Rium, Morlèche, Laval, Léon, returned to the king's authority, some after sieges, and others by pacific and personal arrangement, more or less burdensome for the public treasury, but very effective in promoting the unity of the nation and of the monarchy. In the table drawn up by Sully of expenses under that head, he estimated them at thirty-two millions one hundred and forty-two thousand nine hundred and eighty-one livres, equivalent at the present day, says M. Poisson, to one hundred and eighteen millions of francs. The rendition of Paris, quote, on account of M. de Brissac, the city itself and other individuals employed on his treaty, end quote, figures in this sum total at one million six hundred and forty-five thousand four hundred livres. Territorial acquisitions were not the only political conquests of this epoch. Some of the great institutions which had been disjointed by the religious wars, for instance the parliaments of Paris and Normandy, recovered their unity and resumed their efficacy to the advantage of order, of the monarchy, and of national independence. Their decrees against the League contributed powerfully to its downfall. Henry the Fourth did his share in other ways besides warfare. He excelled in the art of winning over or embarrassing his vanquished foes. After the submission of Paris, the two princes of the House of Lorraine who had remained there, the duchesses of Nemours and of Montpensier, one the mother and the other the sister of the Duke of Mayenne, were preparing to go and render homage to the conqueror. Henry anticipated them and paid them the first visit. As he was passing through a room where hung a portrait of Henry de Guise, he halted and saluted it very courteously. 
the duchess of montpensier who had so often execrated him did not hesitate to express her regret that quote, her brother mayenne had not been there to let down for him the drawbridge of the gate by which he had entered paris quote, ventre saint gris said the king he might have made me wait a long while i should not have arrived so early End quote. He knew that the Duchess of Nemours had desired peace, and when she allowed some signs of vexation to peep out at her not having been able to bring her sons and grandsons to that determination, quote, Madame, said he, there is still time if they please. End quote. At the close of 1594, he imported disorganization into the household of Lorraine by offering the government of Provence to the young Duke Charles of Guise, son of the Balafre who eagerly accepted it and he from that moment paved the way by the agency of president Giannin, for his reconciliation with mayenne which he brought to accomplishment at the end of fifteen ninety five end of section seven